John chapter 6. We're going to continue our study. This is a, one of the longer chapters. In John, there is 71 verses, I believe. 71 verses. We're going to cover verses uh, 22 through 35 tonight. And so, if you remember where we left off last, last Wednesday, and uh, Brother Matt Carnes preached and did a great job. Enjoy when Brother Matt preaches. And uh, yeah, y'all can clap. That's good. Matt does a great job. Absolutely. And he covered the section of Jesus walking on the water and uh, just really brought out some fundamental truths about how we have to respond to Jesus. We have to see him as sovereign and in control. And he's God over, over creation. And, and then he talked about how we have to see him as Lord. He is not just an ordinary man. He has to be welcomed gladly. I, I love that picture as he brought that out, that when the disciples, when the storm was in the boat, and they see Jesus walking on the water, you know, they, it says that they gladly welcomed him into his boat. And for obvious reasons, right? Your boat's in, in a storm, and you see Jesus walking on water, so one plus one equals two. If he's in my boat, it's gotta, it's, something's going to change. Something's going to happen. He, he, has, he has some type of ability that, that I obviously don't have. He has control over Mother Nature. And it says that they gladly welcomed him into the boat. And I just think I love how Matt brought out that that's a picture of us receiving Jesus as Lord. We have to surrender to Jesus as Lord. To, sur- to, surrender, to, to surrender to him as Lord. And as, as we get into this next section in chapter 6, after he walks on the water and they get to the other side of the sea, uh, we're going to pick up in John 6 a, a group of people that were fed with the feeding of the multitudes right before Jesus walked on the water. Jesus is going to kind of start to begin to address this issue about people that are following for the wrong reasons. And they're not really wanting to make Jesus Lord, and they're following for reasons that... that uh, that are self-centered. And so we're going to, but, but before we get into that section in John 6, um, just want to introduce it, uh, talking about this, I think this common um, connection that we all have as humans. I think we all want to be satisfied in life, to have satisfaction and to have peace. Wouldn't you say that? That that's kind of a common thread, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. We all have a common desire to have peace in our heart. Who enjoys chaos and drama in your life? Nobody does. I think sometimes you can meet people and you feel like that that's, they thrive off of drama, you know. But, but none of us as humans want to be full of drama and pain and we want satisfaction. We want to feel like there's meaning in life. We want to have purpose, peace, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment. We're all looking for those things. That's the common, I think, a goal that we have as humans. And so people go in different directions to try to find that. And that, that honestly is the heart of this section. I believe that, that we, we kind of see this. We see some attempts that these followers of Jesus are taking. Uh, the, the, excuse me, not some followers of Jesus. Well, they're following him, but they're not quite followers yet. These people that are chasing after Jesus after he did these miracles. I think we see in this section in John 6 some some truths that are in there that really display the wrong ways in which people try to find satisfaction and peace in life. And so what I want to do is I want to read the whole section that we're going to cover in John 6, 22 through 35, and then we're going to unpack four 
four, four points here from this section. So let's look at John 6, 22 through 35. It says, so on the next day, this is the, the day after Jesus fed the multitudes and he walked on the water. It says, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples. So again, the disciples, it says that Jesus, if you remember towards the end of that section last week, it says Jesus could tell that they were trying to seize him to make him king. So it says he departed, went somewhere. His disciples, they get in the boat, start heading to the other side. They don't know where Jesus is. He took off. Then the storm happens. Jesus walks on the water. And then if you remember, it says that after the storm was calmed, it says that immediately... The boat was on the other side. So this is after that happened. On the next day, it says uh, that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Sounds good, right? Hey, they're seeking Jesus, right? That's all you need to be, right? It's just a seeker. That's what people will tell you. Just be a seeker. Just seek after Jesus. They're seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like, when did you come here? Like, you just snuck off or something. Where'd you, how'd you get here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, that would have demonstrated that I'm God, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, on Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Like seriously, what sign do you do? We'll unpack that in just a a few minutes. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Speaking of Moses, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Really Great section here. My intentions were, when I first started studying this, was to cover verses 22 to 59. And so I was kind of going through that. I'm like, there's no, I just can't, I got to stop at 35. There's just so much right here in this section. And so what I see in this section are four basic places that people will look to find satisfaction in their souls. I think there's really only four places that people will look, four categories that people will look. For general categories that people will pursue to find satisfaction and peace for their souls. And it's in these verses. It's in these verses. Let's look back at John 6, 25 through 27. It says, when they found him on the, on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, 
I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not, this is the key part here, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So the, the, the first harbor, the first place, the first category, first general place that people will pursue to try to find satisfaction in life, find peace, is in things that are perishing. Things that are perishing. People will go out of their way to pursue the things of this life that are temporary. And what are some temporary things that people will pursue and give all of their heart to, to try to find satisfaction in those things? You guys can talk to me. What are some things? Pleasures, money, a career, another person, relationships. Yeah, those are, these are all things, right? Jobs don't last forever. People don't last forever. Money doesn't last forever. Success doesn't last forever. Everything in this life is temporary. Our very lives are temporary. But this is one of the foundational things, the, 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 the foundational places that, that all of us, whether we're believers or non-believers, we all have a tendency to get caught up in this idea that temporary things will satisfy. Right? Even as Christians, we can, we can, we can get caught up in the lie that, that I will find greater satisfaction in some other place and some other thing than God, than in my relationship with, with Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why is because we can touch it. It's tangible. It's there. We can pick it up. We can look at it. We can be in relationship with it. We can look at the dollars in our bank account. We can, we can, we can get the pat on the back because of the promotion or, or because of our, our, our career path is, is going steadily up. And that's something that we can cling to and find satisfaction. It's tangible. It's, it's close. And so the, the, the temptation is to take our emotions and our affections and our desires and to place them in those things. And we know that's not true, right? We know that that's not where satisfaction is found because we know that we can lose a job like that. We know that we can lose a loved one like that. We know that our money flies away like the wind. Oh, does it fly away like the wind? our money's been flying away like the wind this week. Joel said he wanted to go out to eat after church. I said, buddy, I don't have any more money this month. We're done. No more spending money. We've just been spending money. It's gone. Uh, and money just flies away, right? But we have that, 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 that tendency, that natural tendency. And, and that's just, that's even for us as believers. But we have a steady a steadying effect, a steadying thing that draws us back. That's our relationship with Christ. It draws us back. And, and God takes us at different moments in our life when we struggle with that tendency. He, he shakes us out of that complacency and reminds us, don't put your faith in uncertain riches. Don't put your faith in this or that or, or in this person or in, or in this career or this job. And he reminds us over and over and over again in many different ra- ways in this life that the only Safest place, the best place to find satisfaction and peace is in the one who is not temporary. That's in Jesus Christ. And that's the heart of the, that's the, heart of the gospel is that we're, we're wanting people to see that the end of their life is, is, there's no peace. There's no satisfaction apart from Christ. That if they die in, the, in, in their sins and they die in the state of rebellion against God, there is no peace for them. There's eternal separation. 
And this is the pursuit that all of us can be tempted to run to on a daily basis. And when I think about, when I think about that, it reminded me this last couple of days as I was studying of Jeremiah 2.13. This is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the nation of Israel, to God's people. He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And secondly, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves. They're trying to dig to find satisfaction, trying to find living water somewhere outside of God. God is the only source of true satisfaction in living water. And God's people who know there's no satisfaction in any other place but in him, they're digging, it's like in their life, they're digging out wells, trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. And those are broken cisterns that can hold no water. They hold no satisfaction. And, and the same is true for those who don't know Christ. It's like empty wells. They run to it over and over and over again, and they have no satisfaction. We can never find ultimate satisfaction in earthly relationships, in material possessions, or achievements and success. We'll never find ultimate satisfaction there. Because we're not created, that's not, we're not created for that. We are created for relationship with our God. We, our life is not meant to be lived in such a way that these are ultimate things. Our earthly relationships, our material possessions, and the successes that we have. These are not ultimate things. Do you, do you know that? Do you believe that? These are not ultimate things. You know, and those, those are kind of three main categories there of temporary things in, in this life. Those are three categories. Earthly relationships, material possessions, achievements, and successes. That reminds me of three other categories that you see in Scripture. Can anybody tell me what those three categories are? Earthly relationships, material possessions, achievements, and successes. What does that remind you of? That's it. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John, who we're studying his, his gospel here, he wrote 1 John also, and he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. And what that means is about not loving the world. It doesn't mean that you don't love those that are non-believers. We're called to love them. But when it says do not love the world, it's talking about the evil world system motivated by Satan and his demons. Don't love the evil world system that Satan has set up for the deception of the world. And don't love the things, listen, don't love the things that Satan uses to deceive So you don't love the system and you don't love the things that Satan uses in his system to deceive people. I mean, think about it. That's what Satan uses. He uses the things of the world, money and possessions and successes and careers. And, and, And those can be good things. There's nothing wrong with earthly relationships and money and possessions and a career and being successful. But he flips it all on its head and he makes it about the pride of life. Makes it about lust and perversion and ungodly desires. So John says here, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does that mean 
if you love the world, it means that you, you are giving your heart and your affections in a way that you are only designed to give it to God. So God wants all of your heart and all of your affections. He wants the best of you to be given to him. And when we slice up our heart and give portions of our heart, the best of our heart and our emotions and our desires to things of the world, it could be a sign that the love of the Father is not in you. So it says right here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For what's in the world, all that is in the world is this, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, what, 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 what are we saying here? It's passing away. It's temporary, temporary pleasures, temporary, temporary things. They're passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And these things that are, that are perishing, that are passing away, this, this is what I see in this section in John 6. You have these people that they got fed in this miraculous way. Now some people say that there was upwards of, if you include the, 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 the women and the children in this feeding, it's close to 20, probably over 20,000 people got fed in this miracle. Five loaves and two fishes, two, two fish broken and given to over 15, maybe 20,000 people. An, a, an amazing miracle. And these people were filled. Their bellies were filled. And wouldn't you think that would be enough for them to look on Jesus and to believe that he was the Messiah, to believe that he was the Son of God? And Jesus knew their heart. And when they woke up the next day and they realized the disciples of Jesus are gone, Jesus is gone, and they're like, hey, we got to go. Look, I'm hungry. It's breakfast time. I need need something this morning. And this guy who fed me yesterday, he's gone. I mean, i got to get to this, this restaurant I gotta find this guy. They get, I mean, and we know that's their motivation because Jesus speaks only truth, correct? So he called him out when he saw him. You're not here because you believed in me and who I really am. You're here because you got full in your belly with temporary bread. That's why you're following me. He called him out. Jesus knows how to call out hypocrisy when he sees it and, and when he knows it because he knows the heart. And he knew their heart. And he called them out and said, you're seeking me, but for the wrong reasons. And, and so they, they, they get on the other side. He calls them out. And I think we, we, have so, we have so many people that I think can end up in that category. Because it's, it's so easy. I've touched on this a, f- a few times um, over the last year or two. But I just see such a, a trap in, 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 the, in the body of Christ, if we're not careful, that we can, make, we can make the Christian life about us and about the accumulation of temporary things. And, you know, the Christian life is not about those things. God wants us to, to, to have good lives, healthy marriages. He wants us to raise our kids well. He wants us to, to, to be successful and all of those things. All, all those things are true. But that cannot be the ultimate purpose of the gospel, can it? I mean, the ultimate purpose of the gospel is not for God to give us in our, life, temp, in our lives temporary things as the ultimate goal. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Christianity is for us to have a means of the forgiveness of our sins. So that we do not, so that we can escape eternal damnation. 
That's the core of the gospel. And so, just, I think, for, I mean, look, I'm preaching to myself. This is a temptation for me as well. For me, for my heart to be filled with idolatrous thoughts and to go after the temporary things of this world and forget that this is not what it's about. It's not. It's not about that. And Jesus calls it out right here. He says, it's about me. And, he's gonna, and you, you, we're, we're going to see the first of seven I am, sta- I am statements that Jesus says in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. That's what it is about. It's not the bread that filled your belly. It's not the money in your bank account. It's not that relationship that you're in. It's not that career that you're moving up in. It's not about any of those temporary things that pass away. The world is passing away. It is about the eternal bread that my Father has provided for you to eat and to find forgiveness and peace and joy and eternal life. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Amen? That's the first place that people can run to. The harbor that they can pursue is, is the harbor of things that are perishing. But it's empty. Let's go back to the text. Let's look at the second place that they, people will try to find satisfaction in. If we continue the, the account here in John 6. So, so then when Jesus called them out on their hypocrisy called them out on their selfish motives, then they said to him, well, because well, he, he, he said, well, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to that section just to get a running start. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes. So he, so he tells them, you're working, the, you're working for the wrong thing. You're pursuing, you're giving your effort to the wrong thing. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will, will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal and pick up in verse 28. Then they said to him, okay, you're telling us we got to work? Hey, I, I can sign up for that. I'm, I'm used to that. And so then they say, what must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So I find, and I see in this text, that one of the second places, the second place, the second harbor that people run towards to find satisfaction is in works of goodness. Works of goodness. So temporary things, and secondly, works of goodness. Don't you find that to be true? People will make statements like this. When I die, hopefully, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Pastor Nate talks about it, and I've heard him say it many times. It's just that religion that's that 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 scale you know and you you put your your good deeds on one side and your bad deeds on the other and hopefully when you die your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and god says all right i'm gonna let you in because you did you did a little bit more good deeds than you did bad deeds is that is is that where we're going to find satisfaction and peace with god it's it's through our good deeds through being good enough but that's what people do you know and 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 I, i think sometimes people don't even realize they're doing that it's, it's almost like people try to atone for that inward sense that they're not right with God. The inward sense that people can have of something is not right. I've violated something and they'll, they'll, they'll give to charity or, they'll, or they'll, they'll, they'll every now and then you know, help a neighbor out or they'll, they'll, they'll do their good deed. I, I remember having a conversation with, um, with, with a 
the man that I used to work for before I came to work at Living Word Church. And, and he was talking about just his r- religious experience. And it was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had with a human being. Just really eye-opening and sad. And he just went through all these descriptions of his relationship with God. But one of the things that stood out to me was uh, very descriptive of where he was placing his trust. And he talked about, he used this phrase, the state of grace. The state of grace. This is what he said. He said that, that when he would wake up in the morning, he would pray his prayers, and he would do the things that he would do as a, as a good Catholic. And he said that when he would do those things, he says, I'm, I was in, I'm, I'm in the state of grace, and so I'm good. I'm good. I'm forgiven. I'm good. I'm with, good with the Lord. And so he said that he went to this, uh, to this uh, place of business one day. And this place of business had certain types of people who would perform in them. And he was selling a product to this business. And he went in there and, and he went in at the wrong time. And there was activity going on that he didn't want to see. And he was scared he was going to be out of, the, out of the state of grace. So he said he's talking to the owner of the, of the, of the business and, and he's, he's closing his eyes the whole time. I mean, it's good. He's closing his eyes. Right? He shouldn't be looking at things that are going on. And he got out. He said after about a half hour, he said, I got into, I got into my vehicle and I went, I'm still, I'm still in the state of grace. I haven't lost it. And I just, I felt so sorry for him. That his sense of being right with the Lord was completely conditional on him doing good things and not doing bad things. And how, how many of you know that's not the gospel message? That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is that there was only one perfect man, right? Only one perfect man, and his name was Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this about that perfect man. It says, says this, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, the only perfect man, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It's not based upon our good deeds and our ability to stop doing bad and then to do good. And hopefully I do more good than I do bad and I maintain that righteousness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is based on the foundation of faith and the finished work of the cross. And as a result of that faith, God imputes his righteousness to us. It's an imputation. It's not a daily infusion of grace and righteousness. It is, it is God takes the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and he clothes you in it. And you become the righteousness of God. And your heart changes. Your life changes. Do you still make mistakes as a Christian? Do you still sin? Yeah, if, if you say you don't sin, then you make God a liar, it says in 1 John. The truth doesn't dwell in you. Christians acknowledge their sin. That's what makes you a Christian. If you don't acknowledge your sin, you're not a believer. But if you acknowledge your sin, it's a proof that the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of you. So, in my Christian life, if if I couldn't get saved by my good deeds, my good deeds can't keep me saved as a believer. It's not about our good deeds. 
That's not where we're going to find satisfaction. We're not going to find peace. And, these, and, these, and these, these Jews right here, this is what was right up their alley. When Jesus says, do the work of God, they're thinking, hey, I got this. That's what we do. We do the works of God. We follow the Torah. We follow the law. I, that, that's, that's, I can compute that. That makes sense to me. Do good. Don't do bad. Obey the law. That reminds us of who? The the rich young ruler. So look at Matthew 19. Look at Matthew Matthew 19. This is such a profound story. It's very similar to what we're we're seeing here. This is a a reaction. Jesus says you must do the works of God. And these people that are following Jesus for selfish reasons because their belly was filled, they say, well, well, hey, I'm following them here. We need to do, we could do some works. Matthew 19 it says, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So what, I mean, what's Jesus saying here? It's like he's, he's, he's not saying that to get to heaven, you've got to keep the commandments. He's setting him up for something here. He's, he's setting him up. And he said, and the the young ruler said, hey, well, which ones? Tell me. I can figure it out. I can do it. And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, hey, hey, I, I keep all of these. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? And you know what Jesus said? Just like Jesus got to the motives of those that followed to the other side of the sea, Jesus knew the heart of this young man. When he said, what do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. You know the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So who can be saved? And when you get to the end of Matthew 19, Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, his disciples say, who can be saved? It's impossible. For people to be saved. And that's the point, right? It's impossible by good deeds. And this is what Jesus is trying to get this young man to see. You can't do it. If you'd be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Jesus was trying to lead this young man to the place of understanding that true religion was not about doing good or earning righteousness, but it is based upon a total commitment of the heart. And that's what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on on the Mount. If you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what Jesus said, that phrase he said over and over again, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. You've heard it said, don't murder. What did Jesus say after those things? You've heard it said, don't do this, but I tell you, I'm worried about your heart. I tell you that, that, the relation, that what I'm after is an internal transformation, not an external manipulation. That's what I'm after. That's what he's after with these Jews that followed to the other side of the sea. That's what he's after with the rich young ruler. And that's what he's after with us. Finding satisfaction and peace through good deeds is impossible. It won't happen. It's only through relationship with Jesus Christ. Prophet Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, all of our good deeds are like a a what? 
a polluted garment. And when you translate polluted garment out, I, I don't want to tell you what it really means. You can think, think about it when you get home. A polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Good deeds can never earn us favor with God. Good deeds can never earn us favor with God. Because good deeds will always fall short of God's standard of perfection. They always will. No matter how good you can be. If you fail in one deed. You're guilty of all of them. Every good deed falls short of the standard of perfection. And that's the best place to be as a human being. That you're at the place where you say, God, I can't do it. And I place in my faith in your perfection. And what you did for me. And absorbing my punishment. And God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Because of your faith. And gives it to you. Amen? Isn't that good news? That's why they call it good news, right? That is good news. And that's what, that's what we get busy preaching. I, you know, when, when, I, when, when I see people like this, when I, when I see people like the rich young ruler, when I, when I read about people that, that are, are like this in John 6, and, and, and they're eager to do good works because that's, that's something that, they, that they're used to doing to try to please God. And when I see some, some people come into church and I, or I interact with people and they have that idea, you know, what, what, what I picture is just this heavy weight and load on their shoulders that they, were, that they cannot carry. And the gospel message, it lifts that off and takes that load and places it on the shoulders of the only one that can carry it, and that's Jesus Christ. And that is what we preach. That's why it's good news. That's why we go all over the world with the gospel, because it's good news. What's the third harbor people We'll go to, to try to find satisfaction and peace. Let's go back to the text, John 6, 30 through 32. So they said to him, after he kind of destroyed their idea of what it means to to work good, he said, the works I'm after is belief, it's faith. That's what I'm after, it's faith. So they said to him, then, okay, what sign do you do? I I get what what you're trying to say. You're trying to say that we need to look to you. And they believe in you. Basically what they're saying here is they understand that Jesus is trying to say that he's sent from the Father. So they say to him in verse 30, well then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? If this is what you're saying. And as we said earlier, don't you think that the reason they were following him is because he did a sign? You see the hardness of men's hearts right here. This is a description of the hardness of men's hearts. I mean, if you were in a crowd where you saw somebody feed 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, wouldn't you believe? And, and, and the rumor spread, maybe he walked on the water. Wouldn't you believe? Wouldn't you not need another sign? But you see the depravity of man, the hardness of men's heart. Even in the face of evidence, men will reject what is obviously true. Because their heart is hard. It takes the working of the Spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel to break down that calloused heart. And that's, and that's why Paul says in his writings, it is through the foolishness of preaching that men are saved. It's, it's through the foolishness of preaching. So what, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And this is, 
So amazing that they said this. Our fathers, our ancestors, our ancestors, our family, my mama, my daddy, my great-grandfather, my cousin, my auntie, Nonk, <laughs> everybody, my cousins, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What do you think they're saying there? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious they're, they're pointing back to Moses. They're pointing back to the feeding of the children of Israel for 40 years. You know what I think they're saying here? They're contrasting, and they're saying, you know, Jesus, you fed 20,000, but my boy Moses... He fed over a million people for 40 years. What sign are you going to do? Are you going to outperform Moses? Are you going to do something greater than our father Moses? He's the keeper of the law. He's the one that gave us the law. We, we submit to him. Look, 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 look at this. This is, what, this is what they're saying here. Because if, 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 if the sign was enough, they would have believed but they were trying to point to something that was a greater sign. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. You see that spiritual pride that was in there? This is where we come from. This is who we are. Our fathers did this. This is our heritage. This is our legacy. And Jesus looked at him and says, you got it all wrong. Your faith is in Moses. It wasn't Moses. It wasn't Moses who did it. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. What did Jesus do right there? He put himself equal with God the Father. My father. He put himself higher than Moses. My, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. What's the third harbor people try to run to to find satisfaction and peace? I, I believe it's called inherited belief. Inherited belief. That's what these Jews were saying here. Hey, my daddy went to church. My grandpa went to church. You know, uh, I grew up, I grew up in this church. You know, this is just what we do. We go to church on Sunday. We go to church on Wednesday. This is, this is what we do. This is, you know, I, that's why I, I do it because it's an inherited belief. You know, I believe that inherited belief is one of the dangerous places for people to be in because they can be so blinded. They're so blinded to the reality of their true condition and their need for a savior. And they can be lulled to sleep with just a traditionalism. Just a tradition, just a sense of this is what we do. We go to church on Sunday. We, get, we, we, we leave church on Sunday. We go to Piccadilly. Oh, why did they close Piccadilly? I was on the phone. Side note here. It's probably not the best thing to do in the middle of, of a gospel message. But I was on a call with, for my grandfather with AT&T. My grandfather's like 85 years old and doesn't remember a lot of things. And the TV wasn't working and... So the AT&T guy said, what's the four-digit password for the account? I went, oh, there is no way he's going to know this. And I said, I said, I said uh, Papa Buddy, what's the four-digit passcode for the account? He's like, I don't know. And uh, so then the guy on the line said, well, what's his favorite restaurant? That's a question. So what's your favorite restaurant? Piccadilly. And that was it. <laughs> so however many years ago he set that up, Piccadilly was still open off of, uh, off of West Park. And Piccadilly, right? Well, how did I get there, Piccadilly? This is why you shouldn't do this. But that's what we do. We go to church, go to Piccadilly, we go home. It's tradition, it's religion. It's what we do. But they can never, you, you, you know, you can have somebody that can come to church for years and years and years and years and never be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. 
You know, you know scripture tells us that? In Matthew 7, 21, it says, Many on that day, what day is that day? That day of the judgment of the Lord. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, we've cast out demons in your name. We've done miracles in your name. And it says that, that the Lord Jesus will look at them and say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, of iniquity. He says, I never knew you. That word knew or know is, is a word that describes an intimate relationship. So you can have somebody that, that can, they can believe that they're okay with the Lord. They're falsely converted. I, I've heard of people, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard people, stories, people get baptized. Get baptized, water baptized, public declaration of faith. And were on drugs when they did it. False, false conversions. It's one of, one of the scariest places to be in because you are truly deceived. It's an inherited, it's an inherited belief, a, a sense that you're, you're okay because my daddy was okay. My daddy loved God. We cannot trust in our bloodline for salvation. It's not in our bloodline that we're saved. It's in the blood of Jesus Christ that we're saved. You know that the Samaritan woman was just like that? If you look at John 4, we covered this a while back. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And this is whenever the woman began to realize, okay, wait a minute. She starts to see something different here. And and he says, well, I know you have no husband. You're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands. And she realized, okay, this guy is somebody special. And then what does she do right here? Verse 19, the woman said to her, sir, I believe you are a prophet. And what does he say? Very similar to what it said in John 6. Our fathers. Worship on this mountain. But you say in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. What does Jesus say here? Woman, believe me. And that's the point. That's, that's where everyone has to get to. Everybody has to get to the place where they don't say, what did my father say? What did my great-grandfather say? What did my friend say? Jesus is, wants us all to get to the place where, where, he, where we believe him. We listen to him. It's not an inherited faith. One of the greatest prayers I pray on a regular basis, and when, I don't know if you know this, when I dedicated those three children on Sunday, I said the same thing for all three. So Lord, I pray that one day that they would make a decision to follow Jesus and make him the Lord of their life because everybody has to get to that place. You can't, my, my kids, they, my kids, you know, Lincoln is gonna, all he's gonna know is me as a senior pastor of Living Word Church. As long as, long as I'm here doing that, he's going to know that because he was born around the time that it's going to take place. And my son Joel and Eliana and Reagan, they're going to be growing up in a place in a pastor's home and, and that's not enough for them. Growing up in a Christian's home and, and it doesn't give you extra credit to live in a pastor's home. It probably makes it a little more difficult to live in a pastor's home and follow Christ. That's why we want to protect our kids from not liking God in church and not liking and loving God because any of the troubles that they see in church. But they have to make a decision to follow Jesus. They can't ride my coattails. Your kids, your grandkids can't ride your coattails. They have to, as Jesus said to, to the Samaritan woman, believe me. You believe me. Don't worry about what your father said. You listen to me. We cannot find peace through pursuing the pleasure of temporary things. We cannot find peace through trying hard to be good. We cannot find peace and satisfaction by mindlessly following in the footsteps of our family. 
The only place of true satisfaction is found in Jesus, the bread of life. So here's the fourth place, and this is the only place where people can find peace and satisfaction. Let's look at the text, John 6, 33 through 35. This is the, 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 this is the road that Jesus is taking them on to, to get to this point. He says, You're, you've been after me for the food, for your belly, and the work I'm after is a work of faith to believe in me as the Son of God. And it's not about your father and Moses, I'm greater than him. And I'm telling you, verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, hey, that sounds good. Give us this bread always. This is the point of the conversation. Jesus said to them, I am. His first statement, the I am statement, the statement connecting him with God, Jehovah God. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So the fourth place is the bread of life. That's the only place to find true satisfaction is to take Jesus Christ as the bread of life into your life. And you know, when we fast forward into this section, the famous statement that Jesus says, he culminates this, this discourse here. And he says, if you, want a part of, if you want to be a part of me, what must you do? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't do that, you have no life in, in you. You can't have eternal life. And obviously, as you know, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. He wasn't talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's talking, about, he's talking about the place of total surrender and commitment and leaving behind good works. This idea that you can be good enough to get to heaven. Leaving behind this idea that it's because of your lineage and your heritage that you're going to get to heaven. This idea of pursuing temporary things. You have to leave all of that behind. And as we sang that song, we have to surrender our hearts to you, Jesus. And you are our source of true satisfaction. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Total commitment. And John 6, 66, 666. John 6, 66 says, Many that followed him that day followed him no more. His disciples said, This is a hard saying. It's a hard saying. How can you... How can you say this? And it says that many that day that were followers of him left and said, I can't do this. This guy's crazy. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. They didn't see it. They didn't understand it. He is the bread of life. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. Can't find a cup of tea that's big enough to satisfy me or a book long enough to read, to satisfy me. It's that sense that there's no satisfaction in temporary things. Matt Carter comments on John 6. He says this in his commentary. He, he says, that which we think gives our lives so much meaning is never quite enough. We always need more. But even more won't do it. We think when this event happens or this goal is achieved or we reach this milestone, then finally life will be worth living. But even those who reach their goals still die. Jesus, the, the, Jesus, the bread of life, is the only one that satisfies. None of those things, temporary things, good deeds, inherited belief. I want to play you this video. It's kind of an interesting video. 
Who, who, who knows who Aaron Rodgers is? Most of you know who Aaron Rodgers is, right? He's a football player. It's kind of an interesting video because Aaron Rodgers begins, and you'll see in the video, he begins to question what matters most in life, which is what we've been talking about, right? He begins to question where does satisfaction come from? And look where he ends up. He ends up, he ends up as far away from Jesus, the bread of life, as you can possibly get. Let's, let's watch this video. February 6, 2011. Aaron Rodgers led the Green Bay Packers to a victory in Super Bowl 45. The game changed his life, but not for the reasons you might think. He had ascended the mountaintop of his sport, silencing the doubters whose skepticism he had long used as motivation. But when he reflected on everything he had accomplished, he was surprised to realize he was still searching for something else. He sat on the bus, surrounded by his teammates as they passed around the Lombardi Trophy, and thought to himself, I hope I don't just do this. Since that day, Aaron Rodgers has been quietly evolving in plain sight. His personal journey began with his faith. I think in people's lives who grew up in some sort of organized religion, there really comes a time when you start to question things more, he says. It happens for some at an early age. Others, you know, maybe a little older. That happened to me six or seven years ago. Growing up, Rogers attended a traditional church. But as he entered his late 20s, he began to confront the lessons of his youth. He became acquainted with the work of a progressive pastor named Rob Bell. And after he won the Super Bowl, the two men spent a great deal of time talking about what Rogers experienced on that bus. How he felt, or didn't feel, and his realization that absolute success didn't give him inner peace. I think questions like that in your mind lead to really beautiful periods where you start to grow as a person, he says. And I think organized religion can have a mind-debilitating effect because there is an exclusivity that can shut you out from being open to the world, to people, and energy, and love, and acceptance. As Rogers' views on his faith began to shift, He grew increasingly convinced that the beliefs he had internalized were wrong, that spirituality could be far more inclusive and less literal than he had been taught. He says he changed his narrow-minded views about the world and his place in it, and spent more time thinking about his life off the field. And while he is still intensely private, he has slowly begun to open up, sharing bits and pieces of himself with the aim of being better understood. He wants to remind people, he says, that there's more to me than football. Since winning the Super Bowl six years ago, Rodgers has not good. returned. That's good. When I, when I read that, when I, read, when I watched that, the beginning of that interview was back October 2017. I was like, man, this is hope-filled. He's questioning, what is, what is all this about? And I was like, oh man, maybe Aaron Rodgers became a Christian. And I got through the video and I went, maybe Aaron Rodgers was a Christian or grew up in some type of Christian belief, and, but he's abandoning it. I thought, how sad. And, and, and I thought, oh, I wish, I wish I would have had a conversation with Aaron Rodgers and not Rob Bell. I wish I could have talked to him oh, when he was on the bus. I wish I would have been seated next to him. I wish there was some other Christian that would have been there next to Aaron Rodgers and said, Aaron, the thoughts you're having, they're good. 
They're true. God wants you to get to that place to realize, no, this is not what it's about. This temporary success that you've experienced, there is no satisfaction in it ultimately. It's only temporary satisfaction. But he went, he went the wrong direction. He believed a lie. He believed a lie. And that's, that, that's a lie that we cannot afford to believe. The lie that Aaron Rodgers believed. And he's heard the truth. He's heard the truth. And he's rejecting the truth. He's re- rejecting the truth of Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. That's the truth that he didn't, he didn't internalize and come, to, and come to know. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 says this, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen? Amen. So that's the end of this section in John 6. And as we continue on, we're, we're, we're really going to, this next week, I think, dig into an, an area that a lot of believers struggle with. It's the area of the assurance of salvation. And I, I really want to help some people next week that really struggle with knowing and believing and understanding that, that, they're, that, that they're saved. And that that salvation belongs to God. And it's His and He keeps you in His hand. That's what we're going to preach. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Lord, I just thank you for your truth, for your word. And God, I pray for Aaron Rodgers. God, I pray, Lord, that you would send somebody into his life. God, that's, if he comes full circle again, and he's questioning again, God, I pray that you would close the mouth of people like Rob Bell from speaking lies to him. God, I pray that you would rise up, that you would raise up a faithful proclaimer of the truth for Aaron to hear, for him to be reunited with the, with the things that were true that he, has, he learned in his past. And he would surrender fully to Christ. He would find ultimate satisfaction in you. And I pray that for ourselves as well, that as believers in Jesus Christ, that we would not believe the lies of the world, that we would not place our hope and our faith in temporary things, but that we would place our hope and our faith in the only one that can satisfy in Jesus, the bread of life. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I love you guys. I will see you on Sunday.